Ouija broads. This is Liz. This is Devin. Devin, this is one that I have had on my radar for a long time. Okay. And I wasn't sure whether there was enough funny in it. Mm. But it was so unusual as a story. It was just so strange and something I'd never heard of before that I felt like we needed to cover it. Okay. Well, I mean, if, if it gets too heavy, I'll just interrupt you a lot with like fart noises. Thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll signal you when the fart noises need to happen. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the story of Vanport, huh. which was for a time the second largest city in Oregon. Oh, no way. Okay. Have you ever heard of Vanport? Sure haven't. Ever been to Vanport? No. no. Back in the day, this is another one of our Ouija rods at war. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. This is a World War II story. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little reel. Yeah. Uh, just like the, the jellyfish in the sky and Nobuo Fujita and all that good stuff. This is another one that was shaped by the Pacific Theater mm-hmm. and the role of Oregon and Washington and California as sort of the extensions because, you know, Alaska wasn't part of the country at the time. Right. The extensions of the United States and sort of the the launching point, metaphorically and literally, for a lot of its operations once Japan was in the war. Yeah. After Pearl Harbor, there was a huge need for ships for two connected reasons. One is that we were in the war. Yeah. And needed to have a navy. And the other is we lost a lot of ships at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So... Because this was back when everybody would get behind the war effort. Right. And I can't relate to that because we've been at war for, like, most of my adult life one way or another. Good We're God. in some kind of action. I Man, I wish it could be, like, Molly in um, American Girl dolls. And it's like, I'm going to have a victory garden. I'm going to do collect my collect tinfoil. Yeah. I'll yeah. go be one of the rosies. No, it's just, <laughs> I mean, what, Gulf War, Desert Storm... Operation mm-hmm. Iraqi Freedom, Afghan War. I don't know uh, how many other ones that I don't have names for, but they've been constant since we were kids. Yeah. Anyway, so Henry J. Kaiser, whose name is all over stuff on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. He's like, Kaiser Aluminum, right? Yeah. Kaiser Aluminum, Kaiser Permanente, yes. which is where I get my health care, Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a great source if you're interested in health policy stuff. They've got a lot of really accessible, interesting write-ups and a lot of current information. Anyway, as you know, if somebody names a lot of stuff after themselves, it's probably because they're really, really super fucking rich. Yeah. Right? Henry J. Kaiser was like, aha, we are in the war effort. You know what I know how to do is build ships. Okay. I fucking know what I'm doing. He'd been building cargo ships since the 30s. And he had expanded once Britain got in the war because they would order ships from him too. Okay. And then after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he goes from having two shipyards to three and four. Mm. And his shipbuilding yards were a crucial aspect of World War II in that he was just the the kind of guy who, like, the scale of what he did was so big that, like, I'll spare you the whole, like, why Kaiser Permanente was interesting, but basically he founded in some ways our modern concept of employer-sponsored health insurance and HMOs because he was just like, I'm sick of trying to figure out health insurance for these people. I'm going to do my own thing and hire my own doctors. (laughs) And for once that worked. Okay. Uh, So he also, let's see, uh, once built a Liberty ship, which, let me look at what 
that is. Mm-hmm. A Liberty ship is a type of cargo ship from World War II. They were like 440 feet long, 56 feet wide. He once built one at his shipyard in less than five days. Are you kidding me? Imagine how exciting that would have been if you're like, oh shit, we're in the war. A bunch of our ships are at the bottom of yeah. like the water outside Hawaii. Yeah. Oh, you can do this in under five days? I'm a fan. Yeah. So his Oregon shipbuilding yards during the war built 455 ships. Good God. That's a lot. That is so fast. Yeah. He just got shit done. He went, okay, if I'm going to build all these ships, there's a couple things we're going to need to do. One, I'm going to hire everybody. I don't have time for your shit about only hiring white people. I don't have time for your shit about only hiring men. I need every warm body that will come out here to my shipyard. He was, sometimes capitalism overcomes our white supremacy. Oh, totally. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He had the wartime Kaiser shipyards that were in Portland and Vancouver. He was having a hard time finding housing for his workers. Oh, for all the people. Okay. He brought in, during World War II, about 72,000 workers came to Portland you to, be to work in the shipyards. Me. Yeah. There's no housing for these guys, no. right? No housing, especially given that Oregon and Portland are racist as hell. Uh, especially yeah, at yeah. this point. Yeah. 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 Oregon... When it was founded, when Oregon was admitted to the United States, but but you better make some fart noises because this is terrible. Uh, It was the only state whose state constitution actually forbade black people from living there, working there, or owning property. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I think sometimes there's a tendency to be like, hey, we weren't around for the Civil War. We're exempt from all that. No. Until 1926, it was illegal for black people to move into Oregon. Wow, Oregon. So you know who really loved to move to Oregon? Racist white people. Yeah, white supremacists. (laughs) Yeah. In the early 1900s, there were 14,000 KKK members in Oregon. Jesus Christ. So then... Yeah, they picked the governor once. Oh my Uh, God. So then you're in the 40s and this guy brings in 78,000 people, including minorities. Yeah. Portland... As, they, as we come into this, is one of the most segregated cities north of the Mason-Dixon line. Black people couldn't vote in the state until 1927. Most of the black people who lived in Portland prior to World War II had come to the city working as railroad porters because that was one of the few jobs they were legally allowed to hold. Which okay. meant that Albina, which is a terribly oh sarcastic God. name for this area, was where most of them lived because it was walking distance to Union Station, the Portland one, not the New York one. Uh, gotcha. And then, then comes the redlining, so extreme housing discrimination. Yeah. It becomes also one of the only places where they can own property. There's a code <laughs> of ethics... Quote, unquote, 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 from the Realty Board of Portland in 1919, that realtors and bankers were not allowed to sell or give loans for property located in white neighborhoods to anybody who wasn't white. Oh, stop. Oh, my God. So by 1940, two years before Kaiser gets into this, Portland has 1,900 black residents and 1,100 of them live in the Albina District, centered around North Williams Avenue. It's just two miles long, one mile wide. Then Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Yeah. 
I told you this one is kind of heavy. This is <laughs> it has really its heavy, heavy aspects. I think, yeah, but it's strange aspects too. <laughs> Kaiser really liked Portland and Vancouver to build his shipyard because there's a couple of things that you need. And one of them is water. Yeah. And another, you need water. You need water. Ships. Another you is electricity. And they had the Bonneville Dam yeah. that had just opened. And he's like, okay, we can do that. He produced ships from there and brought in his 72,000 people, of whom about 40% were black. Wow. Imagine that. We- this is part of this huge great migration and during the period between 1915 and 1960 nearly six million black people left the south and went to the northern cities a a million and a half in the 40s a lot coming out west to the shipyards of the pacific coast because i mean word travels fast he doesn't fucking care right can you put in the shift yeah right works for him there's he'll pay you (laughs) Yeah, at, the, at minimum, you were like, well, I have a one-by-two-mile window where I can actually, like, live here. Oh, my God. But obviously, that fills up really fast. Sure. So, I'm going to do a quote from the Portland mayor, because I think to whitewash this, no pun intended, yeah. would be to minimize how bad this discrimination was. Yeah. But this is the mayor of Portland in 1942. He says, Portland can absorb only a minimum number of Negroes without upsetting the city's regular life. Uh, fuck you. Fuck um, you. Fuck you. Fart noises. You're the mayor of fart noises. You're the mayor of fart noises, my yeah. God. So... Put yourself in the shoes of Henry J. Kaiser, right? He is a patriot. He is a manufacturer. Yeah. He is a guy who is used to getting exactly what he wants. Yeah. And if you won't do it the way he wants, he will do it his way in under four days. You know? This exactly. Is so he's like, okay, where are they going to live? And Portland's like, well, obviously, they can't live in here. Oh, my. <laughs> what no. are you talking about? And Kaiser goes, I don't have time for this shit. So he starts to build his own city. <laughs> I actually quite like Kaiser so far. Don't tell me anything to... I like this. Yeah. There's probably stuff about him that we wouldn't like, Uh but this part I like. Yeah. So he builds... First, it's known as Kaiserville. And then eventually, because it's between Vancouver and Portland, it becomes known as Vanport. It's built on this marshland between the Columbia Slough and the Columbia River. Yeah. There's like a system of dikes, almost like in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, You said that without (laughs) laughing, and then you laughed. I I laughed because I thought about making a joke about it, and then I didn't. But there's levees that are holding back the Columbia River. Mm Mm-hmm. He takes this land where really nothing was except water and builds a city in 110 days of 10,000 homes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, as you can imagine, there is some cost cutting. There is some uh, efficiency over quality. So there's a lot of, like, they don't pour cement foundations because they don't have time to wait for concrete to harden. Yeah. So everything's on wooden foundations. Okay. They have fiberboard walls. Everything is the same. And the apartments are not fancy. Right. The expectation is that you will have like a family of six living with one bedroom or two bedrooms. Yeah. But still, it's better than nothing. I mean, because when people came out, they were sleeping like in cars, they were sleeping in rail yards. They were, there was no place to put this many people. I think it's important to point out that the speed and the cost cutting measures sound to me. 
I'm saying this as a mm-hmm. as a privileged white person in 2018. They sound like they're not racially motivated. Like I'm going to make a shanty town, and that's good enough for you. It's a mm-hmm. I need to to house seventy thousand people, and the only way to do this is with yeah shanty town standards. And I hope that that's the case. I think it's. A mix. So Vanport was, it had what, that's why you heard me trying to listen to how this is pronounced, de facto segregation rather than de jure, meaning that like people would assign black families to the same apartment blocks, but it was not the law the way that it was in Portland. Okay. And the apartment blocks were not built differently with the expectation that different families would be living in them. Like, they Ooh. they all went up at the same time. They all went up fast. They all were right. all, you know, thin walls. People yeah. complain about that well, <laughs> and that's a lot. So, originally, they said, we're going to make 6,000 apartments. This is going to be what we need. Three days in, they go, oh, shit, we need more than that. Yeah. We need about 10,000. And so, they built a bunch of 14-unit buildings of wood on wood foundations that were all two stories tall and it had one story wings so normally each of these apartments would have a living room a little kitchenette a bathroom and a bedroom okay one bedroom which you know some of these are quite big families there's a great documentary that i watched so you know pbs does the american experience yeah. a couple states have done their own experience series and the oregon experience series is like 14 seasons long holy shit there's a lot of amazing stuff and i found this so fascinating i was watching more of them last night because they're just so fucking good yeah but there's a vanport one where they interview people because of course you know this is the 40s so there are still people alive today who were kids and they talk about the experiences of you know they had not a Murphy bed, but yeah. like, I feel like she called it a Davino or something. It was one of those like <laughs> old people names for furniture, but it like folded out of the wall. Why are you laughing so hard at Davino? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because if Erin is listening to this episode, her grandmother, when Erin and I were married, had a very long sofa that you could only refer to as a Davino. Yes. And it was long okay. enough that a six-foot man could stretch out and sleep on. It was much longer than a modern sofa. Yes. Uh, oh, my God. Okay, I just looked this up on on Urban Dictionary. For once, I can actually read an Urban Dictionary entry on the show. A sofa or couch, the term was more widely used in the 50s and 60s, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. So it's kind of related to the hide-a-bed thing. Yeah. What would happen with these apartments, because they were built to be sort of very space efficient, is at least one person who was interviewed in the documentary talked about how there were like, they had a bunch of kids and all the kids would sleep in the bedroom and the mom and dad would sleep on the Davino, on the Davino. which would fold down from the wall. Can I make a prediction? Yes. We are making a bunch of cheap houses out of wood with wood floors and we're doing it on what sounds like it's in a slough. It's a mm-hmm. floodplain area. It's very moist in that part of the country. Yes. I'm, yeah, this is this has defined many stories that we've told about it Oregon. Is. It's like, we're going to send these balloon bombs to burn down the forest. Well, you can't. It rains. You can't. I'm going to drop bombs from my little tiny submarine launch airplane and burn you. I can't. It rains. Yeah, it's, it's going to be real wet, guys. And wood gets real grody when it's all wet for a long time. <laughs> D.B. Cooper's going to jump out of a plane. <laughs> uh, it was pretty fucking wet, dude. <laughs> a poor guy 
guy got trench foot just when he landed by nature of where it was. So I just I just wanted to point out to you that I'm very aware of the environment in which we are building a lot of wood structures right on a very soggy ground. Yeah, and it was not ground that anybody else wanted uh, yeah. for pretty much that fucking reason. Yeah. Like, the, the, it presented a lot of problems because, yeah. you know, wood swells and it'll fuck things up. We talked about anyway. this in Locke, California. The only way that the yes. Chinese people could get land was because it was swamp land that nobody fucking wanted. So they had to, yeah. to drain it in order to even make it kind of habitable. Right. So this guy, his name is Manly Mabin, which cracks me up. He wrote a book in 1987 called Vanport, and what he said is the psychological effect of living on the bottom of a relatively small area, diked on all sides to a height of 15 to 25 feet, was vaguely disturbing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I believe it. It was almost impossible to get a view of the horizon from anywhere in Vanport, (laughs) at least on the ground. You're living in an open-air basement. Right? You're like, I kind of feel like I live in a bowl of some uh-huh. kind, like a soup bowl. Uh-huh. This is very disturbing. <laughs> but Van Poort took off because everybody moved in and everybody worked at the same place. So yeah. everybody lived together. Everybody worked together. That meant that even though it was kind of crappy... It still had almost like a summer camp vibe. Yeah. It was outside Portland city limits, so it did not really have an official government, but it had like a fire district and a school district. It was under the control of the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department for law enforcement. All right. But for the most part, they went, this is a company town, this is a company problem. And in no time flat, there were 42,000 people living there. Oh, my God. That's how many people lived there at the peak. So this was now the second largest city in Oregon, built in 110 days. <laughs> and that's four people per tiny efficiency apartment, if we're doing some averages here. Yeah. Yeah. It got crowded. Packed. But <laughs> what that, that smell like? Oh, my God. Yeah, in the sogginess. Yeah. How they get the fast sewer lines Oh, my go in. God. That whole place smells <laughs> like a foot. <laughs> It had, as well as the housing, a movie theater that did three double features a week. It had shopping centers, a hospital. It had rec centers, schools. And actually, because they were building so fast, the parents would have shifts around the clock. So the daycare also went around the clock, which I think is great. It was part of the school district thing. They're like, okay, like if you're there from, you know, 10 to 10, we'll have your kids from 10 to 10. Oh, my gosh. And they would also do this thing which would not become popular in the U.S. in general for a long time, where because it was not the expectation that women were staying home, it was the expectation that they were working in the shipyards – they would sell prepared meals. So the working people could come by, pick up their kids from the 24-hour daycare, yeah. and then could go buy a store or a restaurant and pick up, like, a whole chicken dinner. Ugh. And then just take it home and, you know, sit the kid in the seat and serve the dinner. Yeah. Yeah, you had a little kitchenette, but they had, like, a full-on Boston market, like, yeah. whatever you want to yeah, call exactly. it, set up. Oh, that's yeah. so easy. That had to have been yeah. such a godsend. To just be like, no, not one of you has got all day to cook and clean, and especially not in this postage stamp-sized kitchen. Just get your fucking yeah. rotisserie chicken from Safeway on the way home. Exactly. And call Let's it just good. do it. Yeah. 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 So Vanport was a weird mix of everything. It was a weird mix socially mm-hmm. because although it was 
like I said, they had sort of the de facto segregation. Yeah. The schools weren't segregated. Oh, good. The schools were actually integrated okay. because that's what the school district preferred. Okay. The sheriff's office actually tried to make them segregate the rec facilities, and they said, no, we're not interested in doing that. That's like, awesome. Yeah. They had people there from all over as well. When they In the documentary, there were people who had moved out from reservations. In later years, after the war, a lot of people who had been in Japanese internment camps came back, because obviously their homes had been snapped up by white people. Of course they had. And they couldn't just move wherever, but they could move to, to Vanport. Wow. So they did. It was a very diverse area. And, of course, a million lightly supervised kids are around. <laughs> that would have been the life, dude. Halloween yeah, was fucking lit. Yeah. They they said one of the guys who was a kid at the time said they kind of had seasons, right? So, like, there'd be a season when you'd race your soapbox derbies. And there'd be a season when everybody would be marching around catching tadpoles. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, it had that sort of idyllic leave it to beaver, like, just huge herds of kids riding bikes everywhere. Right energy Ugh. because it's this little closed community where everybody works together everybody knows each other it's not i'm sure there was crime of course but it must have felt very intimate and very much like a family yeah oh wonderful yeah, yeah. like i said the peak population was forty-two thousand, and that started to fall toward the end of the war okay and as we got closer to ending the war people in portland started to talk about what are we going to do? Okay. Because one of the things that they needed to plan for was the veterans coming back and needing someplace to live, ah. right? So we are on the cusp of what's about to be the 20th century baby boom. Yes. And people knew, like, a lot of people are going to come back and we've got to figure out where to put them. Mm -hmm. But people in Portland did not think very much of Vanport. Dicks. Because there were black people oh, there. My blacks and whites living together. Multiple. Oh. <laughs> Mass chaos. Mass chaos. Yeah. So it was, in some ways, a very progressive town, in some ways not, but certainly very, very different than Portland, which was sitting mm. right there. After the war, there's this influx of World War II veterans and their families and people from the internment camps. Because, of course, you know, if you were in the Northwest, that's where the bulk of the Asian immigrants outside of California were. Yeah. Who, you know, the Japanese people who ended up in the camps and then they come back. And this doesn't do anything to change Portland and Vancouver's mind about what this place is, right? Okay. Because, of course, we love our veterans right up until they need something. Oh, yeah. And then and then we're like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. This uh, sucks to be you, my friend. This, this will not do one bit. Mm -hmm. We have to keep looking at you. Yeah. There was the whole thing of the water. Oh, the and water. you correctly predicted that this can become a problem. It can. Let's talk about... 1948. So the war's been over for a couple of years at this point. Okay. And the winter snowpack in the Columbia Basin mm -hmm. was between 75 to 135% of normal. Oh my God. And then, along with having double snow, yeah. it was a very warm spring. Oh, so no. there were major rainstorms in May. Yeah. So 
what happens, and I think if you're not around giant mountains, this might not occur, but, like, we have mountains that always have snow, Mm -hmm. unless something rains on them. So what started happening at the end of May 1948 is rainfall from these huge multi-day storms combined with the meltwater from this abnormally prolific snow and started feeding into the Columbia. So they were having high water levels that nobody had seen since 1894. This was a once in a hundred years flood. Which was a problem, because the lowest point in Vanport was 15 feet below the water level of the Columbia. This is where this story started to give me serious Katrina flashbacks. So, you know, in Katrina, they were saying, you gotta leave, you gotta evacuate. Here they were saying, you're fine. So the Housing Authority of Portland on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1948, is saying it it issues the following statement. Dykes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited. So I would take that as I'm good because among other things, let's see, I live in Vanport. I probably have a big family. Uh, I probably am not allowed to stay at a lot of hotels. I moved here so I don't have family in the area and I rely on public transportation. That whole you'll have time to leave, don't get excited is the morning of Memorial Day. Then it's 4.17 p.m. on Memorial Day. And you know if I'm going to go from it was this year to it was this month to it was this day to it was this moment. It's fucked. Vanport is surrounded. Basically, it's like it's in a box. And three of the walls of the box are actual levees from the U.S. Corps of Engineers. One of them is a railway berm. So it's only been built strong enough to hold up the tracks and the trains. It is not built to withstand the Columbia motherfucking river. At 4.17 p.m., this railway berm bursts. So this 10-foot wall of water comes in. Yes. Everybody is trying to get out on the one road. Jesus. And fortunately, there's about 18,500 people living there at this point. Okay. A lot of them are gone because it's Memorial Day weekend. Oh, right. So that helps a lot. Okay. But they have about 35 minutes to get out. (sighs) Which is not as much time this is as like, you probably want. No, this is like trying to race the Mount St. Helens lava flow. Everybody else is racing it at the uh-huh. same time. It's backfilling, and it is starting to move stuff. So just like with Katrina, yeah. it's picking up cars. So if you don't get your car out of there oh, fast God. enough, that's bad. And it picks up all the apartment buildings. God. Because as you correctly predicted, they're on wooden foundations. Yeah. And wood floats. It does float. Yeah. So if you don't move fast enough, you're moving. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to move one way or another. There's a really scary story in the Vanport documentary where a guy who was a young man at the time, I think, talks about he's trying to get out on a bicycle, I think, or on foot. Either way, he's not in a vehicle. Yeah. And he goes past this bus which is taking too long to get up Denver Avenue oh, and it's getting picked up by the water. Oh, God. And it, there's an entire bus full of like 60 people. Yeah. And, oh, no, he was a young man. I remember because he's carrying his kid. And this woman puts her baby through the window and gives him 
her baby Fuck. to protect because she thinks she's going to die. Yeah. Like, this bus is washing away. How is she going to get out? Yeah. So then he has the enviable task of getting through this water with two babies in his arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bless him for taking him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would have been like, I'm going to, like, tie you into my shirt. Pretty much. Can you float? Like, <laughs> find, like, a Titanic-style door yeah. and I can just push yeah. you guys along? Moses like, floated. We'll, we'll yeah. put you in a basket, little dude. There you go. So he did make it out with two babies. And then when all was said and done and he was sort of standing up on the embankment watching this ruined town, the woman was able to find him and oh, get her baby back. good. Yeah, so everybody's evacuating. You know, the Corps of Engineers and the relevant authorities are aware that there's a problem and they're trying to send help. But there's only so much help because the water at this point is three feet over the goddamn levees. So even if it had held, it would come over. Although I think there's... A physics argument that I'm unqualified to make about the difference between water pouring in and a levee breaking. Because mm-hmm. a levee breaking is hitting you yes. with that wall of water that's 10 yes. feet high. And that's when you get the momentum and the domino effect of all these buildings going. Yeah. In all, officially, 15 people died. <sighs> Unofficially, it's thought that that number is probably a lot higher, but yeah. there's absolutely no way to prove it. If somebody had come over to visit their cousin for Memorial Day weekend and the cousin died, you wouldn't know that two people died. Yeah, You'd just right. be like, well, we know the cousin's supposed to be there and we know they're not there. Right. Right. More than a thousand of the families who had been flooded out of Vanport were black. So just like with Katrina and with other floods, there's always been a rumor slash conspiracy theory slash concern that the housing authority deliberately withheld warnings about the flood and the city concealed a much higher death toll because of the racial makeup of who was living in Vanport. I think it's less nefarious but equally bad, I think they just were being lazy. I think yeah. they could have evacuated Vanport sooner. They could have closed Vanport right. and had people live someplace above right. the waterline right. if they hadn't been unwilling to integrate people into their communities. Right. Like, fundamentally, whether or not people were making the decision on that day to evacuate, which the whole, like, don't get excited thing is pretty damning, Mm -hmm. whatever the decision was made on that day, the decision had been made many years before that it was acceptable to put a lot of people at risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of who they were. Sometimes when everything goes to hell, we like to point it like that day and go back six hours. But I think the whole story of why this went wrong is a mix of deliberate policy decisions, de facto segregation, the racism that had been characteristic of Oregon forever, all comes together to mean that in one day, the second largest city in Oregon is wiped off the map. Wow. Oh, wow. Vanport never recovered. The people who had lived in Vanport, some of them, if they could, moved into Portland or moved into Vancouver or other areas in the region. And some of what they brought to it was a sense of community. So I think you can say a good thing can come from a bad situation. And one of the good things is that a bunch of people who had been living 
an integrated community, suddenly we're in this very segregated community and said, you know what? Fuck you. Right. I have lived better than this. Right. This is not an acceptable way to treat people. Right. And you need to do better. It wasn't a clear victory, right? It's not like, aha. Mm -mm. But to some extent, there's a, you know, all bets are off and disaster thing where a lot of white families did welcome displaced Vanport residents into their homes. Okay. And for some of them, it was probably the first time they'd ever spent a significant amount of time around Black people. Right. Maybe they didn't want them to be their neighbors when it was a normal day, but they didn't want them to be homeless. Yeah. And so some some attitudes started to shift. Yeah. In the Black community began this organized campaign to say, Portland, this has to change. Right. It, it changed slowly. Okay. Right? Like, so in the 50s, that code of ethics is revised code of ethics, so to speak. So it becomes less difficult for Black people to buy housing in Portland. Okay. In 1960, there's 10,000 Black people living in Portland. 73% of them are still living in Albina. Wow. In 1960, Portland schools were as segregated as the schools in Alabama. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. This is yeah. really important for me to realize what a racist little area I come from. I mean, the, yeah. like, I yeah. knew it, but I always think of, like, oh, whatever, Idaho. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is this is why I was kind of like, Gee, should I do this? Yeah, yeah I feel like we, sh- we should do it just because we can't always put it as an aside as, like, oh, this is a thing in the past. Like, yeah. people who lived here in Vanport during this are still around. Yeah. Like, they lived yeah. through this. The people who were pushing them out are still through this. Right. And and people who had family members who died in Vanport are mm-hmm. still around. And actually, there's a Vanport community of people who lived there who still get together every year. Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, reminisce of, like, do you remember, you know, the movie theater and remember this yeah. and you remember so-and-so and how they did that? Yeah. yeah. There's still a community. Another thing that came out of Vanport, besides this sort of change in attitudes was the college survived. So at first, they had this college that they put in that was called the Vanport Extension Center. Okay. It was mostly there to sort of satisfy that demand for higher ed for the returning World War II veterans. So they started in just the Vanport Junior High School with 200 students, and it cost $50 in tuition and fees. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they had a huge problem with space because mm-hmm. they were like, okay, you know, you'll come in and, like, thousands of people are like, yeah, yeah. I want to go to this. Totally. And they're like, oh, shit. So they go everywhere. They go to the junior high school. They go to the high schools after hours. They start taking over space in the University of Oregon schools. Like, okay. they use every scrap of space they can get. After the flood, it became known as the college that wouldn't die. Oh. So a student who wrote about the college and the flood coined that the students called it the college without a future oh then they moved to buildings at the oregon shipyard the thing that started it all yeah they weren't building ships anymore (laughs) so they they took that over 1953 they moved to downtown portland and move into an old high school that isn't being used anymore changes their name to the portland state extension center Okay. And earns the title of the U by the slew, which, <laughs> nice, guys. Yeah. Then expands and, in 1969, becomes Portland State University. Are you kidding me? We got I am not kidding you. PSU That's where Portland that? State University came from. Holy shit. 
It started out as the Vanport Extension Center. <laughs> it was Shit. the college that wouldn't die. That's awesome. That's yeah. actually really cool. Right? I was really... <laughs> There's one good thing that we can say, yeah. 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 Something cool happened. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Portland is still one of the nation's least diverse cities. And diversity is actually on the decline in Portland, which mm. is pretty unfortunate. Yeah. But... The schools in Vanport were some of the first to hire black teachers, okay. some of the first to be integrated. And a lot of people who came from Vanport became crucial black pioneers. What is her name? Beatrice Gilmore. Okay. She was 13 when her family moved from Louisiana to Oregon. She became the first black person in the state to graduate from Oregon Health and Science University Nursing School. Awesome. And she's dedicated her life to political and community concerns, promoting unity between races. And she said she found the inspiration for both those accomplishments in Vanport. Good job, Beatrice. They never rebuilt. It's now a mix of, like, golf courses yeah. and a park and the International Raceway. Okay. I feel like I'm sort of fumbling around here trying to find, like, the, the end the of end the of it. story. Yeah. And I don't really know. I mean, let me let you react for a while. I've just been running my face. No, it's good. I mean, I don't, I don't think it has to necessarily have a neat conclusion. I don't think that we have yeah. to try to be like, and from adversity comes greatness, because it really sounds like the moral of this story is people in the Pacific Northwest, even very recently, have not been as diverse or accepting as I think you and I would both like to think. And I guess my moral of this is Portland, do fucking better. Stop being a Mecca only for <laughs> for weird white people. Be a Mecca for all people. Yeah. And weird does not know race. <laughs> yeah, right? Weird doesn't know race. And I guess the fetishization of Oregon or the fetishization of Portland by a lot of people in my demographic now kind of irks me knowing that it's only been historically and now a place for Caucasian people. That's a huge fucking bummer. Yeah. I'm happy I took this on as sort of yeah. the Oregon slash Portland correspondent of the show because yeah, it's a town that I like a lot. But in living memory, the racist policies that it enforced made at least 15 people die. Yeah, right. 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 <laughs> and so I think this is sort of the culmination of a lot of stuff that's characteristic for the Northwest, both good and bad, right? The, yeah. the magic of being able to pump out hundreds of ships for the war effort yeah. 24-7, working around the clock in this strange community that pops up in the middle of the river, basically, right. and has all these unusual aspects like integrated rec centers and integrated schools yeah. and pre-made meals and 24-hour daycare. Yeah. And then just gets wiped out. Yeah. So suddenly. And I'd never heard of it. I lived in Portland for three years. I've been studying the Northwest for this show for a couple of years at this point. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. No. The very Northwestern aspect of this is how fast things change. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, how fast things have to change because whenever we say that's how we've always done it, we're never talking about very long. No, we're not. We're not. Mm -mm. Everything is already accelerated out here. Like you said, I mean, we've got 1850 is the recorded history mm -hmm. that kind of starts out yeah. here. 
Um, I was wandering around Moran Prairie Cemetery the other day, actually. Yeah. The earliest gravestones were from people who died in about the 1890s. Because yeah. before then, you know, if you died, they just kind of put you outside the farm, I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. So buried yeah. you there and carved a headstone or not, but they mm-hmm. didn't really have cemeteries around here for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not to say there was no history of people living here, but we wiped it out pretty effectively. Yeah, I think we, yeah. Oh, man. Now you know some stuff, guys. I <laughs> promise we'll get back to, like, ghosts and whatnot, but <laughs> you want a haunted-ass space, go to that racetrack and walk over oh my the remains God. of a city of 10,000 homes. You're getting morbid, dude. It's time to end this one. I you just you're gonna get more and more depressing. Quit whispering. Gonna, That's creepy. Uh, sorry. I'm gonna link some of the great pictures and the documentaries and some narratives and interviews from people who lived in Vanport yeah. on our social media. So you'll be able to find that Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram yes. or the Ouija Broads. You can go to our website at Ouijabroads.com and I'll try to actually catch up on show notes. We are depressingly behind on show notes because it's just (laughs) life there's always stuff we're doing our best it's like if we can get an episode out every week everything else is just gravy yeah how many of y'all actually go check out our show notes like two so we're cool (laughs) Devin, don't fight with them (laughs) (laughs) this is not how you build an audience Devin. don't chastise your followers you're right i'm sorry i love you all she does. If you yeah. want to give us some, some money-type love, you can come to patreon.com slash Ouija And I think that's mostly just <laughs> come find us. Come hang out with us on the internet. Yeah. That's where we live. It's, it's where you live. You know it. Where we live on the internet. But shit, guys, I'm getting back to Washington as quick as I fucking can. And we will finally do a meetup or something where we'll buy a beer at Viking. Yeah, we got to do that. Yeah. All right. In the meantime, everybody, you know what I want you to do. I want you to live weird. I want you to die weird. Oh, that's mean. Me specifically? <laughs> you emphasized that really weird. No, I did. What I do? <laughs> no, not you. Made you think about race? <laughs> Liz, how dare you challenge my comfortable perspective? <laughs> <laughs> Stay weird, everybody. Stay weird. Don't make me look at it. <laughs>